Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We began the book of Leviticus last week. We're in the first, first triennial reading um, of the of the year, that makes no sense. Um, uh, thank you, of the triennial cycle. So we are looking at the first third of every portion. So we looked at the first third of the beginning. So we actually looked at the very beginning of the book of Leviticus last week. We're in the second Parsha of Leviticus now, and we'll look at the first third of that one. We are in the uh, instructions that the priests have. Again, we're not sure if this is the manual for the priests, for them to know what they're doing, or is it the manual for the people to know what the priests are supposed to be doing? Maybe it's both. Um, But we are in the instructions for the sacrifices. So we got the description of the sacrifices last week and how they were to be prepared. Now we're getting the actual uh, doing of the sacrifices, the instructions for the actual, right, um, all, all the technical stuff about um, what has to happen for the sacrificial system uh, to be going in perpetuity without interruption. Okay. So, Bert, you want to read? The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, this is the ritual of the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain where it is burned upon the altar all night until morning, while the fire on the altar is kept going on it. The priest shall dress in linen raiment with linen breeches next to his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. He shall then take off his vestments and put on other vestments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a pure place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning, not to go out. Every morning the priest shall feed wood to it, lay out the burnt offering on it, and turn into smoke the fat parts of the offerings of well-being. A perpetual fire shall be kept burning on the altar not to go out. Okay. Wonderful. God says to Moshe, Tzav et Aharon. So what is Tzav? Command. Command. Command Aaron ve'et banav. So command Aaron and his sons. These are the people, these are the priests. They are the ones who are to be responsible for this system. They're there to be responsible for all of these details happening as they're supposed to happen. They are the ones who are going to make sure everything is going in such a way that the relationship between the people of Israel and God, God's energetic ability to access the Israelite camp is ensured by this behavior. So it is the priests, right, who need, who are charged with making sure that happens. All right. So command them. They're going to be in charge of this. What, what are they going to be in charge of? Zot Torat Ha'olah. A word we're getting here that we are not used to seeing, right, necessarily in this context, right? So what is the word that we got here? Torah. Torah. So in this in this case, what does it mean? It's translated here, ritual. Interesting. It's translate. How do you, how do other people have it translated? It says ritual. Mm-hmm. Oh, mine does too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't love it. It's as usual. It's not 
I'm not suggesting it's wrong. I'm suggesting it's incomplete at best, right? This is not, Torah is not ritual, mm-hmm. right? We, any, anyone in this room knows that. Mm-hmm. If I say Torah, you're not going to go, oh, ritual. What are you going to tell me? If I say Torah, what are you going to tell me? Teaching. Teaching. So that makes more sense to me as the translation. This is the teaching about the burnt offerings, right? These are the instructions from, uh, from how do we get that from, how do we get instruction and teaching from Torah? Um, And and the reason I'm doing it is because this is like one of the first places uh, that we see it here. Where do we get this term from? Anybody know? Tell me what? Interesting. Laharot has an Aleph. Not here, right? So it's actually from Yud Resh He Yara, which means. Do anyone know what that means? Ha! No. That's an Aleph. See, this is, I mean, it sounds the same, yara, leharot, but once we see an aleph, we know, it, it, right, the aleph isn't going to drop. The yud is going to drop from this to get our shorash for Torah, but it's to shoot. Yes, like an arrow. Now, if I give you the hefeel, the hefeel form of the verb, the causative form of the verb, what might then it mean? Like, so shoot, right, is the, is the shoresh. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to go to the causative. If I, what happens if I cause that arrow to do something? Like, because it's already shoot, right? So it's not causing it to, to move. If I've, if I've got an arrow and it's, and it's going, the verb is yara, it's already going, what else can I do to that? Nothing. If it's on its way, let's say there is something I can do. That it's, it's going to be on its way, so it's not that verb. Release. So, release, but I want it to go, Aim. yes. Aim. Yes, Brian. Aim. That's, that's what I can do. The, the verb is shoot, but if I want to cause it to shoot a certain way, you, you aim it, right? And so the causative is how we get to hora'ah, which is the verb for Torah. So essentially, Torah is from aiming, right? Now does it make sense? A little bit more sense? The way you need to go to get it's, to a place. It's what you need to do to wind up in the place that you want to be in. What's the place we want to be in? Right relationship with the divine. When you say the yud drops, what do you mean? Uh, so you'll notice, I, I told you that the shoresh is yud resh he. Mm-hmm. Right, well, obviously that's not yud resh he. This is <laughs> yud resh he. Right, that's your shoresh. That's the root. There's no yud here. Mm-hmm. There's no yud. So when you go from a tripartite root, the yud, if it's at the beginning, often drops off. 
So you, you often have, if you're, if you're in rabbinical school and you've never seen this word before and you need to look it up, you often, if you can't find it, you stick a yud in front of it. Then you'll find it. Because it means the yud dropped and you didn't know the word, so you didn't know the yud dropped. Is it time drop? Has dropped over history? The form. It's when it changes from you know, it, a certain form to a different... It's similar, similar to elision in some languages where you, you drop a letter because of the sounds. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's grammatical why and how and when it drops. The, the whole idea of aiming, it's interesting. Uh, one of the themes of Yom Kippur, obviously, is missing the mark and recalibrating. It's the and, same thing. So what is our word for missing the mark in archery? It's, right? Chait. Chait. is our word from archery for missing the mark, which is our word for sin. So... It makes sense if our word for sin is missing the mark, then to or get it right, right. <laughs> you're going to use a term from archery also, right? Which is to aim. And so this is all about aiming us right, in the right. right direction. That's why Torah becomes the derech, the path, right? Halacha, mm-hmm. right? Does not mean Jewish law. We translate halacha to mean Jewish law. Halacha means the path. The walking, the going. It's the foundation on the path. In a sense too. And uh, there's a sense in some Oriental religions of the same thing. There's that, a, right, a right path. The Tao. And the Tao. Mm-hmm. And then the. That is halacha. The path is halacha. And so the people who use that word know that, right? So it's for the people who live a life of halachic observance, for them, that's what it's about is being on the path. And the assumption is that the instructions for going on the path come from God. Uh, Traditionally. Uh, of course. Of course. Yes. Absolutely. All right. This is the Torah, right? You're going to instruct them, Lamor, saying, Zot Torah Ha'ola. This is the Torah of the Ola. What is the Ola? Burnt offering, it's translated. The Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the first thing we're getting is the instruction for the Holocaust. Right? That's going to burn on the altar all night until morning. The last sacrifice of the day was a Holocaust. So that's the last... And it, and it burns all the way through the morning. The fire is kept on the altar all night long, right? And the Ola is burning on it all night long. I didn't realize that we call the Holocaust and era are happening, that that's where the word came from, this burning. And it's also tied to the eternal light. It's the constant burning of a flame. It, that becomes... It becomes associated with the eternal light. And death altogether. Mm-hmm. So this was really burned up. I mean, if you've burned some meat for eight hours, <laughs> it's well done. <laughs> it, it's ashes, right? It's, not, it's longer than eight hours, right. and it's, it's ashes. It's completely consumed, right, by the fire. So the priest is now going to dress in what they wear. And, and they, of course, wear michnesevad. They wear um, linen breeches. 
and this is their you know so uniform. It's next to the skin. I assume that means no. Nothing not underneath on, it. Not on top of anything else. Right. Nothing underneath it. Um, I mean, the breeches are to make sure that his nakedness is covered as he goes up the stairs. Because we know what happens. Because we know what happens, right? Exactly right. Makes for a very different, you know, day. Um, (laughs) Different story. Different different story. Whole different text. Uh, so, um, So he will take the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. So in the morning, the ashes come off the altar. Then he's going to take off his clothes, put on other clothes, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is, it's the first time we're seeing this word, what? Tahor. Right? Mm -hmm. And we know how big a word that's going to be for the rest of this book, right? The rest of this book is all about Tahor and Kadosh and Tameh. Right, and right, we're going to get pure and impure. All, now, here comes those terms. Yes? It seems funny to me that you would think of all the uh, pure places it would be where the Mishkan is, that they would have to take it out to a pure place. Right, like how come it's not yeah. pure there? But presumably, uh, you, need to, you can't keep gathering the ashes in that place, right, right that you have to... It's got to, they got to get it out of the Mishkan. The Mishkan is not a terribly large space. And if you're doing this every day, and there's lots of sacrifices, yeah. then you've you got to get rid of all that somewhere else. The Mishkan will get filled up. The, right. The Mishkan will be With ashes. ashy. We, we don't want that. So um, an ash pile. This is an ash pile. So, so first there's an ash pile. Then he's going to change his clothes. Why? Exactly right. If you're in your nuclear suit, <laughs> it is only appropriate when you're in the nuclear Area. zone. Exactly. You don't wear that outside, right? Um, so the, those clothes, his, his linen garments that he wears when he's officiating as a priest are only worn in the Mishkan. They're only worn when he's on duty in the tabernacle. And later, of course, in the temple. Um, why, why, such a, why such a crazy focus on only in the Mishkan? Why can't he wear them? It's holy. Okay. It's interesting because you, you were saying you point out a policeman wears his uniform, but now he's wearing maybe a different one that can be identified as he's still a priest and still on duty. I, I, I think, my guts tell me there's something here about how do we treat police officers if they're eating dinner and they're off duty, mm-hmm. but their cop car's there and they're in uniform, right? The, our response to them doesn't change, mm-hmm. right? Our, we, we still see them as officers of the law and we are... Vulnerable. I don't know if I yell, but I always feel vulnerable. Like I'm going to get caught doing something, right? Or uh, they're watching, or I don't know something. And and I wonder if there isn't some element of that when the priest is not serving in the tabernacle, he's just a regular person. 
He, he's a regular, but there's no difference between a priest and an Israelite. Let's remember that. There's no difference. They are taking on the risk for the Israelites of protecting the sancta from encroachment. That's what they do. There's no fundamental difference. But if they're still wearing those clothes around, it's like, you know, you're expecting me to pay for that cup of coffee? Did you not see what I'm wearing? Right? Like, I'm a priest. Like, that, there's no, he's just a regular guy. He's, you know, Marvin Goldberg when he's not, like, doing all this stuff. And I I wonder if there isn't some element of make sure you become Marvin Goldberg. Right? Right. And and they're not supposed to be, you know, they're not any different. They're not supposed to be separated other than when they are doing brain surgery. Then you, you treat them like brain surgeons when they're operating on someone's brain. You don't talk to them. You make quiet noises. Can I get you anything? Can I wipe your forehead? Right? But the minute they stop doing that, they're, they're just a regular person who happens to be a doctor. Got a, okay, so you look at it physically. So here's the priest. There's a bunch of ashes. It's not like in a little cup. It's a lot. No, it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. And that he, he needs to walk through all the neighborhoods or all the people with you know and take them outside aside from the fact he can get really dirty from the ashes forgetting about how the ashes are it's it's quite a trek not like he's taking them across the street but presumably so, his linen garments could be washed right so it's not like but by they the time, don't get washed by the time he got there there he would be in these sacred garments oh, so ostensibly you're... All dirty. So you're and saying it's the protecting ashes, the ten blocks, the the, the kavod right. of the yeah. clothes would be, of the uniform. Right. And plus, it would also, if you think of it, it'd be strange for him to be walking amongst all the people and not it, not at the mishkan in all of these ceremonial clothes. It sounds like taking it out is kind of ceremonial. So right. So that's that's the only difference is that he's still doing. The, the sacred work. He's still doing the ritual work. Right. He's still on duty. Right. He's still, in some ways, right, officiating. All right. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning, not to go out. Every morning, the priest shall feed wood to it, lay out the burnt offering on it, and turn it in, and turn into smoke the fat parts of the offering of well-being. So we're going to get a shlamim offering in the morning, right? A perpetual fire shall be kept burning on the altar not to go out. And actually my notes tell me that the, the Holocaust was the first one of the morning and the last one of the day. So um, I'm not sure why we get Shlamim here as the first. And there are a lot of bulls. And a lot of bulls. A lot of bull. A lot of bull. Uh, <coughs> this... This piece of Torah has been used by the rabbis whenever they want to talk about how we've moved from the system of sacrifice to the system of prayer. That prayer has now taken prayer and study. And what did we learn last week? What else takes the place of sacrifice? Charity. Charity. Tzedakah. Right? Um, And so all those things take the place of the sacrifices now and affect the same kind of transition that sacrifice did including atonement right including sin the way we deal with sin is tshuva right we do tshuva we we have this whole process of repentance um, that involves prayer and all of that good stuff 
And for the rabbis, they don't say, okay, so we don't need to read that stuff anymore. Right? That was then. That was the sacrifices. We're done with that. Forget about it. Now we're going to move on to prayer. And here's what you need to look at. Here's the prayer book. You, that was very nice. That was 3,000 years ago. You can put that over here. Right? That is not what they do. Instead, which is what I love about our tradition, they read all of that prayer stuff back into these instructions. They say, God forbid you should think that this is only about sacrifice. Chas v'shalom. This is, of course, about prayer. So what do you, what do you, what do you think? Tell me. How's the, how is this about prayer? Yeah, Reuben, come on. <laughs> Sometimes when you clear your throat, it's just to clear your throat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm supposed to keep the fire of prayer burning in your heart 24 hours a day. Ah, now we're getting close. The, the point of um, these sacrifices is to draw close to God and so prayer is another way to do that okay so prayer is another way that we draw close we, we, we read that the word for sacrifice is korban right from karov the word for sacrifice is not sacrifice that's Latin and English stuff that has nothing to do with our Bible or our Torah right like it's not sacrifice what, what did we define it as we don't use the word if we're not using the word sacrifice what is it Closeness, bringing close. the, the thing closeness. that helps us achieve closeness, <laughs> right? Not as compact as sacrifice, right? So that, that thing by which we are able to draw close to the divine, that's what we should be using. We should not be using the word sacrifice, okay? So that thing that helps us draw near to the divine is now prayer, for sure. Okay, so, but how does this instruction help us if it's prayer we're talking about. So, so Bert got us close. Fire. We got to have fire. Talk to me about that. Passion. We have to have passion. What else? Anger. Anger. Energy. Interesting. Energy. Mm-hmm. Light. Light. Heat. Heat. How, how, so what is that? If this is metaphoric now, about it's prayer, real. it's physical. It's real. We we have to have what? Heart. We have to oh, have no. in our heart yeah. passion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but usually we don't use that word when we talk about our relationship to the divine. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we don't. What do we use? What What do we need to have cultivate cultivate in our hearts? That's fire. What's the fire? It's so for the, for the rabbis, for us to really be able to pray, for us to really have prayer be efficacious. And what's the point of prayer? What does prayer being efficacious mean? That we are drawn closer, yes, to the divine. So one of the things that helps us do that is yir'ah, our favorite, right, one of our favorite Roots, right? Why can't I decide to write in print or in cursive? I don't know. So, your ah, ah, right? We, we, we have to cultivate a sense of awe. That is the fuel for prayer. Surely there's, and I, I, I just shouldn't have said fuel. That's the fire. Now, 
If, so that's the fire. A fire must be kept burning perpetually on the altar. What's the altar? Our hearts, of course. The heart is the Mizbeach. The Mizbeach, the altar, is the heart. So a fire shall be kept burning perpetually on the altar. Means, right, that awe must be constantly burning in our hearts. And also, although fire is real and we can see it and feel it all, it's mysterious. It's a gift that was discovered. It's not a... So two things uh, to fire being a gift. Two things. One is we're told that when they do the ceremony where they consecrate the priests and the tabernacle, they lay the sacrifice on the altar and what happened? Fire came to consume it. Right, The divine gift of fire but what are we told? And the Sfatimet has a beautiful teaching on this. But what are we told? What is the priest supposed to do about, about this fire business? Keep it burning? Keep it burning. He, what, he's supposed to, verse 5 tells us, every morning the priest shall feed wood to the fire. And the Sfatimet, the Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger, the Gera Rebbe says, God forbid you should think this is a teaching about sacrifice. God knew sacrifice was going to stop. God made Torah for all time, forever. God forbid we would be left without instruction for what to do after the sacrifices. And here it is. We must keep a fire burning on the altar at all times. And yes, the gift of God is that it will be consumed. The fire will come. But you must bring wood. You must feed the fire every morning. Tell me what's the wood. Opening your eyes. What are we going to feed it? What are we going to feed into that fire to make our energy? <laughs> well, gratitude and awe. So awe is the awe the fire. Awe or um, some people want to say love, right, of the divine, and, and we know that they're the flip sides, right, of the same mm-hmm. coin, right? Yira and ahava, right, in our Kabbalistic system, in the whole Jewish system, is they are balanced. Ahava and yira. Awe or fear, you know, we, we know, we know what we mean when we say fear, right? Awe and fear uh, and love, right, are always balanced. Those are the two poles. So love or awe, we're, we're going to feed God our concerns, our worries, our evil thoughts, our gossip, we are, we are to, we are to take all of that crap and feed it to the fire. So that rather than become a distraction and something that pulls us away from the altar, <clears throat> because that's one way you can look at all that stuff. You can look at our anxieties and our worries and our faults and, our, and all of that, and you can say, oh, well, see, that's pulling you away from prayer. But that's not Jewish. It's very Jewish that the Sfatimet says, that's the wood, people. So lay all of it on the altar. Bring it. Jewish guilt. Sit down, shut up, and bring it. All right, let's go. You're going to sit down, you're going to shut up, and you're going to just let it come. What comes? All right? And when it starts to come, you feed it. 
to the fire and you allow it to stoke the flames of love and awe. And in that, you, you do the service of the heart. That feeding the wood to the fire is a commandment. Yes, there's the divine fire. But we have a responsibility to bring our <sighs> junk, <laughs> right, and use it. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. This Fatimah, our tradition teaches, use that stuff. It's not separate from any of this. It can't be. <laughs> There's no separation from the divine, really. So is it so, sort of like, let me uh, gather all my thoughts that are worrisome, that are gossipy, and let me just turn it over to you so that now I can go on with right thinking in my life. And it's not just turn it over to you, meaning now it's your problem, yeah. right? Right, right, but I, it's, I'm giving I'm going to use it as fuel yes. Yes. for my own devotion. Right, right, Okay. I'm going to let it be the, the stuff that gets that fire hot. Okay. In one of your sheets that you handed us a couple of weeks ago on meditation, it had to do with allowing transparency of everything that is in your brain and in your heart to be transparent. That's the same idea of awareness of all that we are and dealing with that. And accepting Yep, because when we start to split it off, that's when we get into trouble. That's when we get into real trouble. When we when we start to deny it and don't want to look at it because we're ashamed, we're you know we're so busy judging it and making it other from us. That's when we get into big big trouble. It's never by facing it. As hard as that, I'm not saying it's easy. It's the hardest thing we do, isn't it? Facing those thoughts, facing those fears, facing my inadequacies. Ho, ho, ho. That is not fun. Um, But we are promised that that is the way to transform them from sticks to fuel. The sticks are there. We're human. Sticks are going to be there. Now, are they going to poke you in the eye? Or are we going to use them as fuel for the work of drawing clothes? Drawing clothes takes work. It takes service. What, do you, what is the word for service? Avodah. Avodah. What's the word for work? Avodah. <laughs> What's the word for slave? Eved. Mm-hmm. It is sacred worship, sacred work, work, slavery. It's all the same thing. It's hard. The and question is, what's the point? Is it building a pyramid or is it building a fire of love and awe in one's heart so that one becomes a mishkan, a tabernacle? Oh, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. It's not just nice words. It's truly help me become a mishkan. Help me become a sanctuary for you. And not once a week or once a year. This is daily. Twice twice a day. This is morning and night, which is the time of the Jewish. All day. The fire's going all day. This makes me think of what we were talking about last week with Moshe being afraid to enter enter the tabernacle and God saying, Come. and then we're able to say, I can do this. So taking from Moshe, not being uh, able. able to enter the tabernacle, and now it's us doing, performing this to enter the tabernacle. Right, exactly right. We, we become 
We're called to become Kohanim, right? So, and of course, the rabbis look at the text and say, we're told we're to be an Am Kadosh. We're supposed to be a holy people. Uh, and we're supposed to be a nation of priests. Each and every one of us. And therefore, we are, right? And so it's, it's a beautiful way they read. So be a Kohen. You, you are the only one who can be the priestess of your temple, right? O- only, that means we are each obligated to the work the avodah, which is also the word for sacred service, right? We are, we are c- called into being the priestess for our own altar. Wasn't Moses' first encounter with God the burning bush? It was indeed. Which never went out? It was indeed. <laughs> we, we don't know. He left, but... <laughs> and, and the miracle was that it didn't consume the wood. Right. And how long did it take him looking at it? <laughs> To realize that the womb wasn't, the, the, the womb wasn't being consumed. We do not know. Amy, I have a problem, though, with, with prayer, which I think can be given in many different ways. Just reading ritualized prayer to me doesn't do it. Right. And we're not commanded necessarily to do that. I mean, we can go through a prayer book and read all these words, and it means nothing sometimes to me. Right. So there's. Even if I read it over and over and over, and over it just means those. Nothing. Those were words that meant a lot to people at some point. Well, they certainly to the people something. who wrote them. Right. Yes, and right. it expressed something. So and in can, it, sometimes we can try and understand what was so compelling. It's like we look at these sacrifices. But our, say, how could anybody get anything out of that? But it there was a relationship that they had. And our prayers can come in other forms. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. We are not. We are progressive Jews. So 100%. I could be talking about meditation right now. I could be talking about ecstatic dance. Like, whatever our worshipful behaviors are, this applies. Whatever we're talking about, right? This is a spiritual set of principles that applies to whatever we're talking about. There is a very long discussion, meaning hundreds of years long, about the balance between keva and kavana, the balance between the set matbea, the set prayers, and kavana, the in, the real intention, uh, our intention, right? Our, and I don't, you know what I mean when I say intention, our our use of that, right? There's a balance between keva and kavana. If it's only kavana, then I'm only going to do it when I feel it. That is not practice. Right, just doing it because I feel it. You know, the kavana. My intention is so there. I'm so present. I'm so moved. Right. If we just rely on kavana, that's not, not going to cut it. We need keva. We need some kind of fixed ritual that, whether we feel it or not, we do it. Right. My yoga teacher, whether she feels it or not, she's on the mat every day. I'm not. I go to Lisa Simon's house. I go to her backyard twice a week, Fridays and Mondays to do yoga. Because if I don't do that, when do you think I do yoga? Never. Never. And I have a mat at home, right? I have a bunch of yoga instruction video stuff that I bought that cost me a lot of money. And my kavana is never there. When I have keva, am I excited always to get on the mat at Lisa Simon's house, knowing what that teacher's going to do to us? No, not very. Um, weeks that my hips are like a cage, it's like, please, she's going to hurt us so bad. Um, but that's the, that's the point. We most often, often we most need it when we least feel like doing it. So I don't want to go too long on this, but I, right? So we, we tend to overemphasize in our liberal Jewish tradition, we tend to overemphasize 
the, the stuff I want to do, the stuff that feels good, the stuff that feels like I want to do it now, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we, I don't feel like going to shul tonight. Okay, well, usually that's what people say on Friday nights because count how many people are here. Mm-hmm. Most of our families say, I'm too tired. I'm not going, right? They're, and I'm not, be, I'm not judging, I, I promise. I'm, I'm really saying that we struggle in liberal Judaism mm-hmm. with any sense of metzuveh being commanded. This, the sense that we are called into this whether we want to do it or not. And I feel like, I was talking with Sarah earlier today and last night, um, that that's kind of the point of Leviticus, is we've, we've lost so much of the ways that our daily lives involved a connection to ritual, and forget ritual, just whatever, instruction, right, that we take seriously around eating, around behavior, around, like, and we just... I think that we, we really need to find a way back to Keva, right? We're not doing great at Kavanah. When we do it, we love it, right? Oh, I should come to Friday night more often because I always love it so much when I'm here. Great. But, right, so I'm not saying it doesn't work at all, but it's not enough. And we, we don't focus at all on Keva, on what, what do we want to say is compelling, whether we want to do it or not. And I'm not mm. suggesting what that is. I'm really not. But... Is it that we decide, okay, I'm not going to eat X, Y, or Z because it's destroying the planet? Could we start there? (laughs) Like we agree we're not going to do X or we're not going to do Y because we feel like, you know, whether we think it's great or convenient or not, we know that it's important enough for us to commit to. We just don't, we don't talk a lot about that. Um, And I think it's one of the really important instructions of of Vayikra, of Leviticus. Lord Rabbi or Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs <laughs> One of those. has an interesting metaphor about, <clears throat> excuse me, about regular prayer. He said it's like uh, water dripping on a rock, that it slowly over a long period of time shapes it. And that part of the purpose of prayer little bit by little bit is for us to shape our souls into what we want to become. So do you remember the teaching um, that I offered from the Svadimet who asks us, why does it say Levavcha? Right? We have a couple of teachings about this. When it says, you shall place these words in the Shema, you shall place them on your hearts. Oh, wait, sorry. Um, right. So it's, it's all... Why can't, what is wrong with me? All right, I'm just going to do cursive because it's my brain thinks that way. Al levavecha, on your heart, right? And so this Fatimet says, why, why does it say, because even in Hebrew it should say, bilvavecha, in your heart. Place these words in your heart. Why does it say on your heart? And this Fatimet says, because we don't always feel it. We read the words and they're just words. But he says, but if you keep setting them on your heart, eventually, your heart will break. Because it happens, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. That is guaranteed. That's one guarantee we're going to get in this life. That at some point, our heart's going to break. And when your heart breaks, if you have set all these words on your heart, they can enter. Because there comes a time when we open up. Whether you, You could say through joy, our heart breaks from joy you hold an infant and a puppy and it's like right your your heart opens up and and it's not all the time maybe it's even most of the time you're just setting them on your heart but there will be moments where your heart opens and then 
it can get in. So what, it's the same idea that, that, yeah, we don't always feel it, but if we have some practice that we're doing all the time, just through the regular days and the mundane times, it doesn't really feel so great and so special. Whether it's touching the mezuzah and get whatever it is, like eventually something happens and all those times of doing it by rote permeate and we go to the next level. Something changes, but it can't, it can't happen if you haven't been doing that right stuff all the time. The tradition really believes, and Abraham Joshua Heschel said it, that, that God is in the details, right? And it's one of the things that, that the rabbis take from, from this, is that God is in the details. It matters how we do this stuff, mm-hmm. right? It, the little things matter. And that taking the ashes is a huge thing here, right? And it's just as important as anything else that's happening, right? It, it doesn't, we don't, we're not left to wonder, so what happened with all the ashes? Like, if they just keep taking it off the altar, isn't it going to, like, fill up the mishka? Like, it's, it's part of the avodah. It's part of the sacred ritual. And the rites is to change your clothes, you put on other clothes, and then the priest takes the ashes out to a, a place that is tahor. That we've, we sometimes, we don't want to do that stuff, right? And we judge that stuff as being less than. But the rabbis tell us that, it's included here because it's just carrying out the ashes and cleaning up is just as important as anything else that's happening in the Mishkan. The lighting of the menorah, all the sexy stuff, the incense, right? You know, the, the showbread, all that great stuff. Okay, yes, that's beautiful. Uh, and somebody's got to take out the ashes, <laughs> right? And um, I tell my daughter all the time, it's like, you know, she leaves her plate on the, on the counter every time. And I'm like, like that needs to go in the dishwasher and she's just like (sighs) and I'm like right we all know this expression um on it on an adolescent's face and and the and the and the verbal that you can only get from an adolescent of (sighs) like how difficult their lives are and so um I bring it up because I said to her who's supposed to take that for you Right, like I know it's a pain in the butt. I know it. Like nobody likes to do it. I don't like to do it. I said, but who's supposed to put your plate in the dishwasher? And she's like, oh, and she knows it's a trick question. (laughs) (laughs) So she's really smart enough to just pick up her plate and take it. Um, But the point is, and I read it somewhere, and and one of the few you know parenting chapters I was able to actually get through, uh, I. It said, because if you don't have them do it, what they learn is that that work is beneath them. Mm-hmm. And they're going to spend a lot of their lives having to do what they think is beneath them. Ooh. And that's not a satisfying life, is it? No. But a lot of life is folding the laundry and sweeping the floor and shaking out the rug and taking out the garbage and taking the dog out and picking up her poop. And like there's, that's most of life, frankly. And if we get... If we raise children who think that is beneath them, most of their life, they're going to be doing stuff they think is beneath them. And that does not lead to a satisfactory sense about one's existence. I thought that, that's why I never, ever budge, put your plate, Mm -hmm. right? It's because, and and I think that's what's, that's the message here. Taking out the ashes is not beneath the priest. They don't call in the immigrant to the, Israelite society and say, you, the gear, you, the stranger, didn't you just get here from like Lebanon last week? You need to take these ashes out, right? 
Because this is beneath the Israelite to do. The priest does it. Not an Israelite. A priest, as part of their holy service, takes the ashes and finds a place to dump them. And th- I think the rabbis are right, whether that's the intention or not. Doesn't, the rabbis are right to say that is an important thing for us to take from this. Yes, that absolutely. the details and even the details that we think are minimal or less than or not as important are critical to our development, right? Um, we're going to look a little at this other place. I want to skip the AFA, the meal offering. Uh, go to 17. Where we get to the sin offering, yes, the chatat. And read that, Bert. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons thus. This is the ritual of the purification offering. The purification offering shall be slaughtered before the Lord at the spot where the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is most holy. The priest who offers it as a purification offering shall eat of it. It shall be eaten in the sacred precinct in the enclosure of the tent of meeting. Anything that touches its flesh shall become holy. And if any of its blood is spattered upon a garment, you shall wash the bespattered part of the... part in the sacred precinct. An earthen vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken. If it was boiled in a copper vessel, the vessel shall be scoured and rinsed with water. Only the males in the priestly line may eat of it. It is most holy, but no purification offering may be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting for expiation in the sanctuary. Any such shall be consumed in fire. All right. So very... Right, very technical. It's very careful. This is very, very careful. Right, clay being porous could absorb some of that right meat, so that has to be broken. It has to be destroyed, um, and the you know the copper one has to be scoured in a way that's going to make sure right that we've removed right. So very, very careful about transmission of stuff and keeping things. You know, think about a chemistry lab and things that will make other things go boom. <laughs> Right, that that's the sense here, right? Is that you, you you have to keep the kadosh, right? Right, every everything that's kadosh has to be right separated out, right? So it's very very um, careful. So let's look at. I want to look at because we're going to go to a teaching um, that involves this. So the priest who offers uh, the sin offering, he'll eat it, right? Uh, he has to eat it in the sacred precinct in the enclosure of the ohel moed. Anything that touches his flesh becomes kadosh. Anything that touches that sin offering's flesh becomes instantly kadosh. Right? Sacralized. And they're eating it. (coughs) The priest who offers it gets to eat it. And and anything that touches the meat instantly becomes sacralized. That would include the priest. Well, the, the priest is always kadosh la donai, right? right. right? Is, well, the priest is always holy for God. Hmm? What else would be touching it? If, it? if it touches this, if I put it down, oh, okay. this becomes kadosh. Um, all right. And if its blood is spattered on a garment, then you're going to take that part of the garment and you're going to wash it in the sacred precincts right away. Yes? And, um, and we get 
we get that anything it comes into contact with has to be handled appropriately now, right? What, and that, I mean, so it's a lot to figure out what that means appropriately. So we're seeing some roots of dietary law. For sure. Because kashrut is a part of this system, right? This is, mm-hmm. kashrut is absolutely a part of this whole Fire business to dishes and pans, right? It's the absolute. It's not separate from, right? right. right? Kashrut is absolutely a part of this idea. Could you, could you address for two minutes what you said at the very beginning about whether this was written for the priests or for the people to know what the priests were doing? I thought it would become obvious to me as we went through it. <laughs> silly, silly, Elena, <laughs> that it would become obvious. Um, <laughs> ever hopeful. <laughs> um, what, what I said last week is that in the ancient Near East, only the priests knew what happened in the sacred rites. Only the priests, the Jebusites, the Edomites, all of the neighboring peoples, only the priests knew what was happening. So the people were disempowered when it came to the, the people had no access to the information about what was going on in there, right? That was the priest's realm. The, the radical new invention is this idea, the ancient Israelites had this radical new idea that everyone should know what the priests are doing in there. Every detail. We get every detail of what they were doing, so that hmm? who had this notion that the Israelites, right? This was a this was a radical new. This was a reconstructing. This was a reconstructing of ancient Near Eastern cult practice. The Israelite cult changed the 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 understanding in a pretty profound way. They did the same stuff. This is this is what everybody did to some extent. Everybody did this. What the radical new reconstruction is, is the people were to know this text. That it, the people had access to keeping the priests honest. That is a complete switch from, that's a theory. There's a theory that says that's why we have this, right? Is that the people were empowered to say, wait, 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 mm-hmm. right? Are y'all sure that you're, and, but if you don't know, What's going on in there? Who's, who, who keeps the priests accountable? Who are the priests accountable to? In the ancient world, it was the gods. Who was it in ancient Israel? God and the people. They serve the people. But there's the strain that says that this was really written only for the priests? Yeah, there's, there's some people who want to say, no, this was the manual that the priest would give to junior priest and say, you need to study this. The people had access to it, but, and that's a, that is still a new radical difference, but it was written for priests. You know, that you, okay, here, here you go. You, first day on the job, you need to study tzav before, before you come in here, right? And then we'll talk about it, and I'll show you how to do the ashes thing, right? Um, and maybe that's what it, it, it really doesn't matter. What, what matters is Israelites had access to this, and that, that that's a radical new idea it in the ancient world. It was required that it be read out loud. And, right, Dude. it was required that a, that a king write a Torah, right? So the king had to write a Torah, right? That's not an easy... People, if you don't have the rule book. Hmm? You need the rule book. If we're supposed to be holy people, we need to know how to do the rules are. Right? 
All right. So go to the pair, the like halfway down. Oh, <laughs> you have the copy. You have. <laughs> you have the mark. Uh, go to my first mark. <laughs> I'm going to try to describe to you where my first mark is. The is. Thank you, Brian. Got it. Brian got it. The Israelite priests of the ancient sacrificial cult lived in no less divisive times, or so the historians tell us. What did they know and do that could inspire those aspiring to leadership in our own time? First and foremost, this is uh, Rabbi Rachel Shabbat Beit Halachmi. I love her commentaries. First and foremost, the priest had to understand precisely what they needed to do. So what is some of the message if we're going to keep metaphorizing this? What's the first thing we need? We need to know exactly what to do. They had, they, for, uh, they had to have watched and learned and trained and prepared for such complex work. Second, they also had to engage in that sacred work with enormous care, focus, and commitment, right? So that's the starting place. We have to know what to do. And we shouldn't be expected to know how to do it on our own, which, by the way, welcome to America 2017. Everybody thinks they're supposed to know how to do it already, <laughs> right? Like, we, we hate asking for help. Don't we? We hate saying, um, I have... Available on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we, we, we're not very good at saying, I'm a novice, and I would really like to learn meditation. I, I don't know how to do that. I hate it. I sit down, and I hate it. I can't stand it. What, how, how did you get to the place where you seem to sit and be just fine for 20 minutes? Like, what's up with that, right? We don't, we don't ask people with experience to show us, tell us, walk me through it. Right? So that's number one. We need to be ready to know what to do and to ask. And then we need to be prepared to engage with that work with enormous care, focus, and commitment. Another thing we really struggle with focus, <laughs> commitment. We really struggle. And I mean, me, we, me. We really struggle, don't we, um, with this one. Leaders in any age must approach all resources as though they are sacred. How carefully a leader handles the precious resources of the people, how carefully and mindfully they perform the right actions in the right place and time matters and can unify even the most divided community. <laughs> the careful behavior of the ancient priests and the behavior of all leaders is so important because their actions show the value they place not only on their role, but on the people whom they represent. One of the most powerful effects of the rituals over which they presided was that even the most powerless and most sinful could feel that the most powerful individuals were taking care of them and their offerings. People who were represented so carefully and responsibly could feel through such rituals that the brokenness of the world and the people in it could somehow be repaired through appropriate and careful action. Leadership executed carefully then is not just about managing a society, but about healing it so that it can move forward with confidence and optimism. <laughs> and then I see the responses around the table. Like, halavai, right? It should only be it should only be um, but I think this is so true how a leader behaves doesn't just speak about that leader it speaks about the care with which they treat the offerings of the people whether that's our trust right our support our, that, does that matter to you as a leader how you talk demonstrates you know how you behave demonstrates whether or not you value that 
And does it allow me to feel that I'm part of a system that, that repair can happen? And, and I think, I think it's, a, it's a beautiful insight she has from this text to leadership. Thirdly, the character of the priest mattered. The community had to not only trust their skills and witness their careful handling of sacred resources, but believe that they possessed the character to properly execute such a role. The quality of heart, mind, and body of the leader is of great significance. Anyone not fit for the role might move the community farther from what it otherwise might become. A few years ago, a few years ago, um, right? The, and this, remember, when we talked about the early, the early prophets who pushed against this system, remember the holiness code? The holiness code of Leviticus is in response to early critics who said, uh, Mr. Priest, we've seen how you behave on Saturday nights. We've seen when you take your linen service garments off, we see where you go. We see what you do, right? That, that was the criticism that, that the function was all that mattered, that the, that the actual character of the priests was not being tended to, like it was not considered important by the priests, right? And so the rabbis, the prophets, were the early people pushing against the system. And like I said last week, Jesus was one of them. Those critics, we're, we're such a crazy people, we canonize our critics, we, we call them prophets, right? And like, who does that? Like, so um, these are the people who criticize our own system, saying you're so focused on the ritual that, you, th- that the character is lost. And that's, that cannot be okay, right? Isaiah, the famous Isaiah, is this what God wants? You know, all these sacrifices and you allow the poor to starve? Are you kidding me with this? And, and the system fell right it, you know i mean the romans took care of it but it was already right coming apart there was already this really really active tension between like the priestly system and the rabbis the the sadducees and the pharisees right all right and don't believe what you hear about pharisees right that is all anti-semitic right we, we get like all freaked out when we hear that word the pharisees and there's the rabbis but we are used to the charges leveled against Jews by anti-Semites, often Christian anti-Semites, when they start using language like Pharisees, right? So, okay. Fourth, while the ancient priest had to be without physical blemish, something we can easily reinterpret in our time, what mattered more was their capacity to strive to fulfill the most impossible expectations placed upon them. In theory, they were supposed to do all the gruesome sacrificing of many different types of animals without even getting a spattering of blood on their priestly garments. But the biblical text is quick to tell us that if they do get spattered, they must wash the garments immediately. The details matter. To do it carefully really carefully and if you get splattered you stop what you're doing and you take care of it right there so if we splatter ourselves by misbehaving we have to take care of it we need to take care of it we have to attend to it you don't just keep walking around bespattered 
the work of the last part, the work of the ancient priest shaped not only the way society functioned, but how it saw itself and its potential, its way forward. In fact, according to the great 20th century anthropologist Clifford Geertz, ritual can transform us into seeing ourselves as greater and better than we believed we were before. The most meaningful ritual experience is one that can transform the individual in such a way that they want to, in turn, transform the society in which they live. Geertz reminds us that in ritual, the world as lived and the world as imagined turn out to be the same world. However, we may sin or fall. Our best leaders facilitate work. Oh, however, we may sin or fall. Our best leaders facilitate work, whether ritual or political, that brings us back to our core values and to who we might yet become as individuals and as a society. Halavai, it should only be. Speedily be me, Rabbi Amenu. Speedily and in our time. And let us say together, Amen. Good Shabbos. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.